Praise the Lord. Good morning. Well, welcome to Super Sunday, because the Lord is so super, right? That we're here to worship and celebrate our risen Savior. For those that are anxious about the Super Bowl, I just looked it up. It doesn't start till 3.30. So we do have time to really celebrate and worship this morning. And also after worship, and I'll repeat it again a little bit later, because I kind of jokingly say we're the 10 after church. So after I pray and we start singing, as others drift in, make sure they feel welcome and say hello. But after worship, we've got a special Sunday. It's once a year. We set up the fellowship hall with tables that have numbers on them. And the elders and deacons that are associated with those uh, numbers will be there at those tables. And you can join them based on what we call district you're in. Now, that's in our phone book. If you're not in our phone book, you're welcome to come. We hope you will, in fact. It's it's really, truly a meet and greet. We want to get to know you and you to get to know us and to meet your elder and deacon. And if you don't know who that is, uh, there will be people in the hallway to help you find that. And again, it doesn't matter if you're in the phone book or not. We just hope and pray that you'll come down and have a great time. There are desserts, and I know we got some chocolates at Jenny's table. Uh, she's in District 1. I'm in District 4. Um, so I've got my own elder and deacon that I'll be visiting with. I don't even know who they are, right? Ha ha. So they'll get to know me too. So anyway, that's what it's all about. And I hope that we do consider staying afterwards, not rush home, just enjoy each other's company in the presence of the Lord, and have a wonderful day today in Christ. So with that, why don't we begin with a word of prayer and then worship. Just let that flow from our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it is such a joy to come together on this day that's so full of grace and mercy, so full of your living presence, so full, Lord God, with meaning and purpose and hope and wonder. God, you're the author of all good things. Every good gift comes from above. And God, we are here to give you praise and glory. We're here to enjoy each other's company in Christ we're thankful, Father, for the privilege we have of gathering in a country that allows us to worship with freedom. And dear God, we thank you that this day, your day, will touch our hearts. Enlighten us, Lord God, with the power of your Holy Spirit, that the light of Christ will shine in us and through us, that the world can rejoice with us in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand. All right, everybody. It's time to get our worship on. <laughs> no, it's so grateful to be here that we have a, a father who loves us so much and has shown us how to love, right?
rescued us and that we can live here in the freedom that we have because of our salvation because of what you did on the cross and father we just pray that as we have such great confidence in you lord we need you so much lord and and we just thank you that you make yourself so available that you're such a good father that you're so righteous and holy and lord that we can count on you and, and that we're never alone Thank you for that gift, Father, and thank you for the hope of eternity. Look forward to that. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, what a, what a blessing it is that we can acknowledge in our humility, Lord God, how much we need you. And Lord, that's not a declaration that we are inherently, inevitably, and impossibly weak. But Lord God, we know that all of us have temptations that come to us from the evil one. We know, Lord God, that in our lives we fall short of your glory and your perfection, your holiness. And we also know, Lord God, that you've called us to be holy and perfect, just as our Heavenly Father, you, Lord, are perfect. And so, God, this day we thank you that you've given us the means, the Holy Spirit living within us, the power of your very presence, that through your grace, that by faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, was buried and rose from the grave and will return someday, that in this in-between time until Christ comes, you declare us righteous. We are your sons and daughters. We are a family together. And so, God, we thank you for the treasure that Jesus is to all of us. And, Lord, we also know that for many of us, we know this is Super Bowl Sunday. And maybe some of us don't know that. But Lord God, no matter what, we pray that good sportsmanship will be seen today. We pray, God, for the safety of those who attend. We pray, God, that Christians in the midst would be salt and light. We pray, God, today, too, for the blessing, your blessing, that your face will shine upon the church and the church around the world, that more and more people will receive and believe the best news of all, that Christ Jesus lives. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is active and alive. Help us, Lord God, to be witnesses, whether it's around a bowl of chili and chips, whether it's just watching the game because we like the commercials better than the sport. Lord God, we know that's true for many of us. But Lord, no matter what, help us to be the light in a world that needs you. Armor up, we pray. We pray that you'll equip us, protect us, shield us, and provide for every good thing to come through our mouth and through our actions. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, the kids are free to head down the hallway now for Sunday school and Gabe's youth group, uh, middle school, high school. You're free to go. For those of us that are here, just a reminder for those that just came in a little bit late, there, there is a wonderful opportunity to gather together in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, Super Bowl doesn't start till 3.30, the game, pregame stuff, probably an hour prior to that. Plenty of time to come on down and relax and uh, get your blood sugar elevated. We've got, uh, at every table, there will be a number down there. And if you're in the phone book already, you can find your name, and next to your name will be a number for instance, if I looked up my name, it says Pastor Bruce and Jenny, and I'm in district number four right here. And that will be the table that I'll be joining. I'll be there with my elder and my deacon if they're both here this morning. Uh, Jenny is one of the deacons, and she'll be at table number one. Now, if you don't know, if you don't have this book right in front of you and you're not familiar with it, they've got folks in the hallway that'll steer you to the proper table. If you're not in our directory, don't worry about it, and please come. We've got way too much dessert down there to not have you be there. But more importantly, this is a meet and greet above all things. We want to say hi. We want to get to know you. So plan on coming down. There's plenty of room at the inn. 
We hope you'll be there. We long to see you and get to know you better. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us. We do this once a year, and we hope you don't miss out. So even if this is your first time here at the church, come on down and let us get to know each other. That'd be, that'd be a real blessing for all of us. Uh, any other announcements to make? Other than somebody might want to say cheer for your favorite team. I know how that goes. Um, any other announcements that we need to pay attention to? All right. I'd like to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're going to finish what we started last Sunday about staying awake and alert. We know the time we're in. We're in God time. Christ is coming back. We're nearer to our salvation now than we've ever been before. This is then the second part to that message about it's time to wake up, Paul would tell us, and to armor up and to serve the Lord appropriately. So I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then I'll read with you the word. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is a blessing that you've given us these letters preserved in your scriptures, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that, dear God, we know that we don't want to just come away with information. We need it. Lord, and we pray your Holy Spirit will help us understand it and retain it. But Lord God, I think the bigger challenge for all of us is applying it every day to armor up in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ every day. God, help us, we pray, to apply it and to make it a daily response in this world around us that the light of Christ will shine. In your name we pray, amen. The first point in your outlines is armor up. Armor up. Romans 12. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather... Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. There's a quote that I want to read for you, and then I'll, I'll tell you who, who wrote it. But it's this. The children now live in luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love to chatter in places of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, which I don't quite understand, but they cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. Guess when that was said? About 400 years before Christ. It's Plato quoting Socrates, 400 years before Jesus. I think every culture and every generation imagines their childhood as perhaps being the golden years, and maybe that's the privilege of every generation. I remember when. I know those times were better. Things are always getting worse. One of the things that I try and do is to get the pulse of our culture so a lot of times when I'm prepping for sermons or thinking about ministry or the direction that we could take it in the church, I'm looking at what's going on. What are the phenomena in our culture that tells us what status or state our country is in? And 
prepping for this message, putting on the armor of light and setting aside the deeds of darkness, I wanted to know what the current moral condition was in terms of perception of morality was in our culture. Gallup poll in May of 2023, so this is very current information, only about six or seven months old, right? Gallup sent out this survey and in their expertise got certain percentages back in your outlines. I wrote them out because you'd never retain them otherwise. And what, I'll just read it for those that are joining us online today. And it's also on an outline if you want to download it off of our website. May of 2023, 87% of our fellow Americans believe morals are only fair or poor. 83% of Americans believe morals are getting worse. 80% of Americans are dissatisfied with the ethical and moral climate in our country. And I thought that was an interesting statement because in this country today, people cannot tell you the difference between ethics and morals. There was, in historical terms, a difference. Ethics was from above, from God. Morals is rooted in mores or social status, social thought a sort of a composite collection of morality. But that doesn't come from above, but from below. So in the old days, you could tell the difference between ethics and morals if you understood those two terms. I still use those two terms that way. Otherwise, it becomes indistinguishable, and we can't separate what society thinks is okay and what God says is okay. And I think as a Christian, we have to keep those things in mind. So I choose to use the old term, ethics from above, morals from below. Yet 72% of Americans believe sex outside of marriage is okay. 52% believe abortion is okay. 48% believe a doctor-assisted suicide is okay. 78% believe a divorce is okay. 70% of Americans believe having a baby outside of marriage is okay. 64% believe LGBTQ plus lifestyles are okay. And by the way, uh, the, average, the average identity uh, for LGBTQ is about 7% in all the states. But if you go to Washington, D.C., it's twice that. I don't know why, but that's just how it plays out. And the younger the generations are, the more the percentages rise. So that's just what our culture is doing and where it's at right now. 39% uh, of Americans believe pornography is okay. But the number one moral concern or a collection of moral concerns that are prevalent in the culture are these, lack of politeness, compassion, caring, and respect. Those are the ones that people tag the most as most important in the degradation of morals as they see it. Now you've got the percentage at the top of such a large number of Americans believing that the moral climate of our country is fair or poor and getting worse. Eight out of 10 people would say that's true. The curiosity for me as I looked at those statistics and others was that how they would say it's fair or poor, but then you look at how people line up on certain issues and you wonder what they're considering to be fair or poor or worsening when they seem to be on board with what God would say is poor and worsening. Now, I'm not saying all of those necessarily are um, issues per se. I mean. Having a baby out of wedlock, I don't think is okay. You want to be married, right, man and a woman? But sometimes someone dies or whatever, and you can see how that plays out. This is not, I don't know how they absolutely 
prioritized all these statements. So there could be some latitude there for a, for a Christian. But what I hope we'll do as a body of Christ, because maybe you're in that percentage group on certain issues, what I would like to invite us all to do is to get over the moral pressures and the moral external, even coercions, the influences, and get back to the standard that holds every church together and honors God, and that's the Scriptures. The Scriptures are where we get ethics. God tells us from above how we are to respond below. I think what happens to myself and, and to yourselves is that we swim in our culture, and the culture around us has these values. And it's really easy to swim in those same waters and adapt to those same things. We get used to it, and then we might even embrace it. And we have to step back from those temptations and say, what does God want us to do? Another statistic that came out, and it's not a surprising one, is that 70% of Americans, based on the Pew survey, PEW survey, some few years back, said that 70% of Americans believe that the religious, the religious community's influence in our culture is waning, decreasing, becoming less and less influential. Now, when I looked at that, I thought, that's probably right, because there are fewer of us that identify as believers in Jesus Christ than prior years. Each generation has fewer and fewer and fewer. That's just how it's trending. It's not inevitable. There won't be zero someday. Those Christians in those young, young age groups, they're strong. They are strong. In order to be a believer in a younger generation where you're really outnumbered, more so than my generation, you better be a believer. And they are. And they're strong, and they're solid, and they're growing. And I'm really, I guess I could say this in a nice, they're just, I'm proud of them. So happy to see that next generation, that younger generation, that strongly fervor with the dedication in a culture that says, give it up. I'm so proud of them. And, I'm, and I know that's the Holy Spirit that gets the credit, don't you? Thank God. Can a society tell us, those of us who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, who ethically love God and others, can a society tell us that we believe? Can a society recognize that we are followers of Jesus? Or do we look and act just like them? Do our ethics from above match the morals from below? Is that okay? Or are we going to stand with Jesus and take our cues from above. Then the world will see a difference and acknowledge that there's something different about us. And we're not saying we're holier than thou, but what we are saying is by the grace of God, our sins are forgiven. Praise God. And we keep our eyes on Jesus. So can we make a difference? Should we make a difference where the religious influences are decreasing, culture believes? I think we should. The imagery that Paul, I don't say I think we should from a personal point of view, I'm thinking what the Bible says. The picture that Paul has in mind probably is of a Roman soldier who partied all night, didn't have a 
inkling what tomorrow would bring, still sleeping in what we might consider pajamas, wrapped up in some kind of cloth, and he's not got his armor on, but the battle's just starting up again, totally unprepared for the day. And Paul is saying, wake up, know what time it is, cast off the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. He's saying, be ready every day to live in a culture that doesn't connect with ethics, who doesn't know God, maybe knows the name, but doesn't know the person, doesn't know the ethics, doesn't know why you behave the way you do. And Paul would say, armor up. Jesus is coming. The world needs us. So the second point, and it may look like the first point in your outline because I forgot to put another one in there, Roman numeral two, live a repentant life. That's what we're supposed to do. Live a repentant life. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness. He's writing to the Christian community. What does Paul know? Well, Paul knows that we wear the deeds of darkness now and then, and he tells us to put them off. That's a great message. That's a call to repentance and to live a repentant life. Let's break that down. To put aside means to forsake. To put aside, to forsake, to renounce, to repent. It's to turn your back on something that's wrong and leave it in the trash can with the lid shut and don't go rummaging around back in the dumpster for it. To leave it behind, to put it away, and not to get it back later, but to really get rid of it. That's what Paul is saying. Don't keep it in the dark corner of your mind. Don't save it for later. Don't cherish it and nurture it and grow it, but just get rid of it. Put it off forsake it. If we follow Jesus, we are not going to celebrate, promote, and participate in darkness, those things in the world that are contrary to God. When we sin, what do we do? Our response, and we're all sinners, we all fall short, we, we sometimes put on the darkness, sometimes we know we are, sometimes we get caught up in it and recognize afterwards that we were lost in the dark, and sometimes we're clueless what the darkness might be at times. We're still growing. We're still learning. We're still identifying with things. Like there was one couple who was married at Foster Tuckwilla Presbyterian Church. The couple was living together when they came. They found out, and they were believers in Jesus. And in pastoral counseling, they found out that they should wait to have a sexual relationship after they were married. And they went, wow, we never knew. Had no idea. Culturally, it was perfectly fine. Then they find out what God's plan was, and it blew their minds. And so they, they didn't live in two separate places, but they lived at opposite ends of the house until they were married. And years later, they became the youth leaders at that church and wonderfully, wonderfully served the Lord. That's all we're looking for is the response to the truth. Let the Bible seep into your very bones and inform your mind. That's what Paul meant at the beginning of chapter 12. Renew your mind. Then you'll know what God's will is. And in a culture that's constantly pushing morality of a variety of sorts, up and down and sideways and trends and everything, we need to be grounded in the thing that never changes, the person that never changes, God, who made us. So what does repentant mean? 
Repentance means I'm going to turn my back on what isn't right. It's sin. And I'm going to look to Jesus. It's two things. Turning away from what's wrong and turning to what's right. And walking in the right direction with Jesus. That's a life of repentance. And I can't take my eyes off Jesus. So when I say I live a repentant life, it doesn't mean I'm always sinning all the time and I've got to keep turning away from it and turning away from it and turning away from it. That's a horrible life. That would drive me crazy. But a repentant life means I'm facing in the right direction and I intend to and I want to. Sometimes, you know, you kind of look over your shoulder. Sometimes you turn around and you just walk right into it. But I want to keep my eyes on Jesus. And that's the key piece. That's a life of repentance. And it's a constant reminder, where's my head? Where's my heart? What am I looking at? What am I absorbing? What do my ears hear? What is my mind doing with it? Temptations come. Where am I looking? I mean, it's a personal message for each and every one of us, myself included. It's a good word and a very mindful one. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say live, or some translations will say walk, which is probably a great translation based on the Greek. So I say live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. When it says to walk or to live by the Spirit, I want to give you an image. In Germany, they had lines, you know, they call them queues in England. They had lines that would line up for anything like tickets or a meal or whatever. But if you weren't pressed tight to the person in front of you, the Germans think space, not line. And if there's a space, this literally happened, they put their foot in the space. And we call it cutting in line. They call it, there's room at the end, there's space. And they'll step into that space. And pretty soon there's another line going that way and another line going that way. And so in Germany, we learn to practically put our belly button in the middle of their back. And we walked in step with the person in front of us almost so there would be no space to preserve that place in line. When the Bible says walk in step with the Holy Spirit, that's how close When the Spirit's foot moves, our foot moves. When the Spirit moves forward, we move forward. When the Spirit goes here, we go there. That's what it means. And the Spirit will never lead us into sin and darkness. So if we walk in step with the power and the presence of the Lord, we will walk in the light of Christ. That's the preservative part. And so we want to be mindful of what the Spirit tells our conscience and to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. That's a great message for all of us, to keep our eyes on Jesus. So what are the deeds of darkness? Well, let's start with the word darkness. That's an easy one. Darkness is a snappy one. Every culture knows darkness. What do we do at night with our doors? We lock them. If there's a weird noise at night, does that bother you more than the same noise in the daylight when you're awake? I think there's a different level of reaction and response in the nighttime. Do you really want to walk in downtown Portland at 1 a.m. by yourself? And I think even men might say, ah, no way. Darkness is associated with evil and trouble. So Paul says, don't walk in the darkness. And everybody gets it. That's easy. 
But when he says deeds, then it gets maybe a little bit too simplistic in our minds because deeds are more than mere actions. Deeds include thoughts and attitudes. There would be no actions without thought. There would be no actions without the attitude. So it is encompassing all of our mind, and out of the mind come our actions. And Paul gives us six examples of sin, deeds of darkness, and did you know there's a hundred of them? There's at least a hundred deeds of darkness mentioned in the New Testament. Paul is not trying to say, here's the laundry list of all the deeds of darkness. All he's doing is perhaps picking maybe the more important ones at the time. Maybe it was just a variety pack that he wanted to start them thinking about because it's a Roman, Greco-Roman culture. I'm not sure what the choices were that he made, and more like, I don't know what made him choose these six, but let's look at them and see where he went with them. Deeds of darkness. Well, first of all, he mentions orgies. Now, I know that brings to mind an uncomfortable picture, perhaps, or, boy, the pastor mentioned that in church. But it means more than that more than what we know and immediately think of. It means several things. It could be not just sexual. It could be wild partying, wild, out of control, no restraints, wild partying. It could also include brawling and rioting. Paul says that's the deeds of darkness. Then he says drunkenness, and usually that goes with the other one that I just mentioned. A drunkenness means your mind is impaired. Your mind has been impaired. And so when Satan tempts us, our restraint, our filter, the frontal cortex of our mind is impaired, and we are not able to process and stand up to that, and we're more likely to fall into temptation and act in ways we would otherwise not behave. So Paul says, don't get drunk. And by the way, Roman society, they, they did drink, but for some reason, women weren't allowed to drink. Women were forbidden to drink. It was against the law. If a woman drank, it had to be medicinal and with certain amounts of volume, and they'd be prosecuted for more than that. So obviously it's not the women that's the problem that brought this to mind in terms of bad behavior and men, bad behavior. Maybe they did get drunk quite often, but Paul says, no matter what, if you're going to have a drink, keep it minimal, don't get drunk, don't impair the mind God gave you. And then he talks about sexual immorality, which is physical sex with anybody you're not married to. It wasn't unusual in Roman society that that was not the case. It was rumored that some people felt that if your wife only had two lovers, that was a blessing. At least just two, no more. There was one man on his gravestone that said he was married faithfully to his wife for 40 years as if that was some amazing feat of accomplishment. Society at the time was very different. Uh, men typically had their wife, they had their lover, and then they had the prostitute. And society said, well, you know, boys will be boys in our own terms, right? But that's how it was, and Paul reminds them that's not how they're to behave. And you know what's really interesting? The Christian community could have just said, sounds fine to me, but they didn't. When they got married, they were faithful to their spouse until death do them part. And that had a tremendous impact on the Roman culture that they were in. People wanted 
and yearned for fidelity in their marriages, to know that that's the one. And Christians acted and behaved and loved one another in that way. And the Roman culture around them that was struggling and brokenhearted and messed up and they, they didn't have the intimacy they wanted to have, they looked at the Christian community and they said, you've got something that I think is really cool. I want what you have. And guess what that did? Open doors to the gospel. Why do we behave ethically? And why is, why is the ethical behavior so wonderful, so fulfilling, so good? It feels good to feel good. Come on, culture. Have a look. They lived it out. And it was very attractive. Lots of writings about that. We can do the same. Debauchery is shameless, excessive, unrestrained sexual immorality in general. Dissension is a persistent, conflicting, bickering, pettiness, fighting to win at all costs. And jealousy is a selfish ambition, envy, covetousness. And that's the internal attitude and mind part that we can hide, but yet it can emerge in what we do. Now, I want to talk for a minute about temptations. Temptations come unbidden. We don't ask for them. They're on autopilot. And they are very opportunistic. Satan is an opportunist. And when we're lonely or tired or angry or hungry, those are the classic times where Satan can really tempt us most successfully. And yet a temptation is not a sin. I know that a lot of people feel bad. It's like, why did that thought pop into my head? Well, you don't have to ask for it. It does. The risk that we have is that our brains, our souls, are a bit like Swiss cheese. Have you ever seen Swiss cheese that has holes in it? Some holes are shallow and some holes are deeper. What it means is, and I'm using this as an illustration, what it means is that every one of our brains are like Swiss cheese. And every indentation is a site where we could be tempted. And the deeper the hole in the Swiss cheese, the more difficult it is for us to resist that temptation. Now, Jesus, the Bible tells us, was tempted in every way and yet without sin, which tells us that those temptations, those things that trouble our minds, trouble our hearts, pop in and we wish they wouldn't, those temptations in themselves are not a sin. You cannot stop them. What's important is that we do not then armor up with them. We do not put them on. We do not wear them. That would be the deeds of darkness in general that Paul's talking about. So don't, don't buy into that. Look at what Hebrews says about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the holes in our Swiss cheese, okay? But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Are we? Yes, we are. Yet was without sin. When we struggle with temptations and we kind of put them on and we wear them, we end up with deeds of darkness, can we come to Jesus and confess our sins and live a repentant life? Does Jesus understand the temptations we face? Absolutely. He didn't sin. If we do, what's our response? We haven't lost our salvation. We need to turn away from the darkness 
and look to Jesus. That's where grace has always been. That's the life we want to live. If deeds of darkness, now here's an application. If deeds of darkness are harbored in your mind, or you've been celebrating, promoting, and participating in them, wouldn't right now be a good time to set them aside, to throw them in the trash bin and shut the lid and never to go rummaging around again? Wouldn't this be a great time to commit our lives to ethics? God, help me grow, help me learn, help me mature in Christ. Help me when I read the Bible to understand it and apply it. Help me, Lord, not get caught up in the cultural mores that are always changing. And I might be outnumbered, and I might be laughed at and ridiculed and made fun of, but God, I trust you that real goodness and real pleasure and real delight lies in what you give me and not what the world gives me. You walk in the light. So here's what we need to do. Armor up every day. Armor up every day. And put on the armor of light, Paul writes. And put on the armor of light. Deeds of darkness, not good. doesn't feel good to feel dark, destructive, damaging. Short-term pleasure, long-term loss. That's the dark. The light brings eternal joy. Put on the armor of light. Winston Churchill said, victory isn't won by evacuations. Victory in Christ is not won by just trying not to do something you shouldn't do. Living a repentant life is to live in the light of Jesus and knowing what you should do. If you think less about what you shouldn't do, you'll be better off. If I'm just fighting not to do that all the time, I'm a prisoner of that. And the Bible says if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed, so keep your eyes on Jesus. Putting aside the deeds of darkness is not enough. Paul says put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4, 22 to 23, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. See where the battle really is? It's in the brain. The attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's who we really are. So if you're battling with sin and you're struggling with temptations and you're falling into those temptations and you realize, man, I've been wearing that armor of darkness, that bad stuff, the things that are not good for me, that are ungodly, that God would frown upon and not bless, then, as I hope you've done, you're willing to set those all aside and trust God. Your new self is not designed to live well in the dark. We've been called out of the darkness into his wonderful light to declare the praises of him to the world. Let's look on. So what is the armor of light that he's talking about? He doesn't tell us directly. Put on the armor of light. Okay, Paul, what is it? Well, armor, if you lived in Rome at the time and you saw the word armor, what would you think? A Roman soldier. Immediately, of course, armor. And if you look elsewhere in Paul's writings... There are two places where it's drawn out. Ephesians has all the armor of God attached to it, right? All the different things, the breastplate and the belt, and he describes each one as a part of our life in Christ and what we need to wear every day. Ephesians 4 says this, or not 4, but um, Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord. That's where your armor is. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
not yours, not mine. It's not willpower alone that'll keep me from sinning. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us that strengthens us to stand up under temptations. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And I want to encourage you to read those, those verses in context on your own because you'll see how Paul describes the armor of God in all the pieces, and I think I might even have a picture of it there for you. The second place that Paul talks about armor is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and he describes it as faith, hope, and love. But ultimately, no matter what description you want to use, it's always about God. God provides these things. We don't provide them. We just put them on. And so it's a conscious decision every day to put on the armor of light. It's not a one and done. Oh, yeah, I did that when I was five years old. You've got to do it every day. And if you found out that during the daytime you took off your armor for a while and you walked in the deeds of darkness, armor back up. It's never too late. Don't ever give up. Don't let Satan get a foothold in your soul to tell you that you are out with God. You're a loser. You'll never make it. You're going to hell again. That's not the message of Jesus Christ. That's the darkness trying to take us down. In the Super Bowl game today, if I was on a Super Bowl team, and I, I would never make it, but in junior high, I tried out for football, and I ended up being the water boy. The second year in middle school, I tried out for football, and I ended up being the water boy. In my sophomore year in high school, I went out for football, and I turned in my uniform. <laughs> and I think I even tried it one more time. I'm not a football material. In fact, if I was on a pro ball team, you know where I would be? On the bench, watching. Go get them, guys. Yeah, 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 rah, rah. But I'm not in the game. And as a Christian, when we fall short and we sin and we fail and we walk in the deeds of darkness, willingly or unknowingly or in a confused state of mind, are we truly and forever benched by God? Never. Never. God says, get back in the game. Put your armor on. Trust God. Read the Word. Live an ethical life. Discover what God has for us. And don't let the world be your sole source of information. That's a very important message for all of us. Because living for Jesus is a spiritual battle. Would you agree? It is not a normal thing to do. In fact, becoming a Christian, you may find your life actually gets a little harder because you're not going with the flow. You're going against the stream. You're Swimming upstream, not downstream. It's harder. It's more work. But God gives us the strength, the almighty power to do it, and the steerage to do it. God declared us righteous. So what do we do every day? We seek to be right with God, righteous people. God declare us, declares us to be holy. Okay, so we strive every day to be holy or set apart for God's purposes. By God's grace, we're already clothed in Jesus so we strive every day to armor up in Christ, to relying on God's truth and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We live. We walk in step with the Spirit. That's the armor that we have. 
So we have to put on Christ. We're not talking about our salvation. By grace, we're saved. We don't save ourselves. God has saved us. That's a one and done forever. But it's our responsibility to respond to that and armor up. And that only you and I can choose to do every day. But it's there for us from God. Don't, do not think about how to gratify, Paul says. Don't think how to sin. Don't think how to do it. That means don't give it forethought. Don't plan. Don't make a purposeful, intentional move to the dark. That's where things go bad. What dominates our thoughts at the time will lead to our behaviors. Do you agree? A thought gives rise to actions. In James, it says this, each person is tempted, and that's the thing that comes unbidden. We don't ask for it. We're not looking for it, but it happens. Satan pops a thought in our head, an attitude, and when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed, if we are inclined to live like the world, we're not facing Jesus, but we're a bit ambivalent, you know, like, well, I know what it says, but I kind of am not sure that that's the thing I want to keep my eye on, and I don't think I want to honor God's ethics. I think I'd prefer a mixed life. Well, then we're enticed by our own nature. And if you think, well, I'm not enticeable, have you ever sinned? Have you ever fallen short of the glory of God? Then you have found that in you is an enticement to evil, right? Without the armor on, we're at risk. So let's read on. Own evil desire and entice. Then after desire is conceived, now you're starting to think about it. Let's see, I got this urge, and now I'm thinking about it, and I think I know how to satisfy that urge. Immediate gratification, I'll go to wherever it needs to be done. I, I can see how this would all play out. The plan starts to develop. After it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's kind of a sequential step. And sin, when it's full-grown, gives birth to death. It is ultimately destructive, ultimately damaging. And sin is messy. It's not just one person. It's not just myself or yourself. It spills around. It influences others. And Paul says, let's be careful. So where do we want to, where do we want to, it's kind of like links. Okay, I'm going to give you another analogy. Sin and behavior is like links in a chain. Typically, there's a weakest link at the start, and that's the temptation. If we can stop the temptation by looking to Jesus and thinking about what's right, instead of dwelling on what's not right, that's the weakest link that we can break. But if we dwell on the temptation, or we're fixated on it, even if we're fighting it, then the link gets stronger. It has a larger hold on us. And then pretty soon the next link is, now the plan is developed, now we've got a very powerful, strong link in that chain that it becomes increasingly hard to break. And then we act upon it, and those links lead us to that destructive behavior or word or attitude. And so where do we want to be when those temptations come? Live that repentant life. And have the armor on to know a temptation when you experience it. And trust Jesus to give you what you truly need and not what the world claims you need. The world can only do short-term stuff. Jesus is eternal. 
And then verse 14, Paul gives us an imperative command. Up to this point, it hasn't been the imperative language. It hasn't been the commanding, now you must do this. But at verse 14, he does. He gives us a command with authority to do. Here's what he says. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Stop that link from getting stronger. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And over time, evidence of Christ's likeness is going to increase. I'm learning. I'm growing. How about you? I feel like I'm a more mature Christian today than I certainly was when I was 18. How about you? Praise the Lord for that. But there's more to do. I'm not perfectly holy until this side of heaven, and this side of heaven, but I will be because God is going to see me through. How about you? So when I fall short, do I give up and hang my head and say terrible things about myself and belittle myself? Is that how God talks to us? God says, you know, you've been, you've been in the dark, but you're a child of the light, and I love you, and I'm here for you. Armor up, brother or sister. Armor up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It's never too late. Today's a new day. Armor up. Good word. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from whom? The Lord, who is the Spirit. Who is transforming you? Are you trying to do it on your own? You can't. The truth is only the Holy Spirit can transform our minds. Walk in step with the Spirit. Take those baby steps. If you fall, God is our Father. He picks us up. He dusts us off. He puts on the bandages. He heals our wounds. He says, get up and walk with me. It'll be all right. Romans 22. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Then Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Without the Holy Spirit, we couldn't do it. Without God's grace, we'd be stuck. But thank God for Christ. So I've got just two questions I want to offer you that would help us all live with the armor on. Here's what I think really, I ran across this in my, my research. These two questions, I think, are good to think about for just a minute as we close. Helpful self-control. Don't ask yourself, can I do this? Because what? You can. You can. You can do this. That's just kind of not a very helpful way to ask ourselves, can I do this? Instead, I want you to ask a different question. Should I do this. You see the difference? Can is wide open. Should has an ethical component to it. Should God, I do this. That would help keep our minds safe. So what are you choosing to wear this morning? Are we going to wear the deeds of darkness or are we going to put on the armor of light? Are we counting on the fact that our salvation secured by faith in Jesus Christ is enough to bring us through, the world will not admire that. 
the world would not be attracted to that. What we need to do is tell the world that there's a better way. I believe that with those kind of statistics that I read off at the start, our country is hurting. It's hurting. 80% of your fellow Americans believe we're going downhill and it's only going to get worse. Where can hope be found? Where can the turnaround happen? Where can a better future for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and generations to come, where is the life we long for them to have going to come from? The Lord. God's got this. We just have to live into it and share the good news of Jesus Christ. They need salvation. They need to hear and receive and believe the gospel. Yes, absolutely. The Holy Spirit is at work. At work, yes. Now God says, you're my signposts. We together are messages. People read us before they read the word. What we want to show them is the wonder that all good things come from above. And it feels really good to feel good. And that goodness is from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a challenge. Lord, our, our brains are a battlefield. Temptations assault us. Stuff pops to mind. And sometimes those thoughts develop attitudes. And attitudes produce the actions. And Lord, we know that sometimes we have walked in the dark. We have joined with the world. Their attitudes have been ours. Their actions have been ours. But God, thank you. Every day is full of your grace, your mercy, a free gift to us that we don't get what we deserve and we get what we don't deserve. Lord, it's a, it's a pleasure that through faith in Jesus Christ, we understand your grace. You reached us before we reached you. You loved us before we had a chance to love you. You saved us, Lord God, apart from any work of our own. With our dark sin with us, you saved us. And you put those sins upon Jesus, one and done, forever. Thank you, Father, that through faith we are saved by your grace. And Lord, we know that the world around us is hurting. Wars, rumors of wars, attitudes, divisions, struggles, attitudes, all kinds of things. Those things are happening in miniature in our own souls. We pray that we will be as holy as you declare us to be, as righteous as you declare us to be, that we will truly be salt and light, and that we will be an encouragement to one another, that when we fall short, we are a family, and love covers a multitude of sins. Help us not to celebrate, promote, and participate in them, in those sins, but to keep our eyes on Jesus and to help each other do that very thing. And may the world... No, you are the living God, maker of heaven and earth, and the means of our salvation, the hope of the world. Help us, Lord God, to be that signpost that points to Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Let's all stand.
good news. I'm encouraged. Are you encouraged? I pray that you are. That's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Let's join in the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all of God's wonderful people could say, Amen. I hope you'll come down, visit, enjoy, have some goodies. They're all there for your pleasure. And have a great Super Bowl celebration if that's what you're going to be doing this afternoon. Have a good time. God bless you.